Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is the middle of July 2020, and we are still beset by the coronavirus crisis. There are some people, particularly on the fringes of the conservative movement, who still believe that it was some sort of bio-war orchestrated by some evil lab in Wuhan, China. Um, if that is indeed the case, which I doubt very much, it may not be the first example of uh, biological warfare. Um, Nicholson Baker, who is a very distinguished American writer, has just come out with a really, really, and I, and I, and I use this word carefully, readable book called Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act which is uh, Nick Baker's search to figure out whether or not the U.S. and particularly the CIA orchestrated a biological war on Korea and China in the early 1950s. Um, Nicholson Baker, is that a fair description of the book? It's a book about many things, but that's the core narrative. Yeah, it's written in a diary form, so it it has this... uh kind of today I'm talking about Cuba, tomorrow I'll be talking about Guatemala aspect to it. But yes, it began with my curiosity about whether or not anything could be said definitively about this question. Did the United States use the many kinds of prototype germ weapons that it had available on a foreign country in either 1950, late in 1950, or early in 1952? That was the germ of it. Then it became a study because I couldn't find out that I couldn't get the documents. It became a study of the Freedom of Information Act. Now, I know I'm not allowed to mention your sex book, so I won't. Um, <laughs> but but um, why not? Is, I, I don't I just just have to remind me of some of the details because I sometimes they they blank out later. Yeah. Well, of course, I haven't read any of them. But this book basis is also it seemed to me a book very much about desire but a desire for truth, Mm -hmm. and particularly for this truth about history. Is that fair? Was this book driven by your own personal desire? It was. Oh, definitely. That's a a beautiful way of putting it. What what it was is I I ran into this question in in this course of working on a book about uh, the destruction of newspapers as part of microfilming, if you can believe it. And somewhere along the way, I ran into this uh, nonprofit in Washington that had that was involved in funding microfilming uh, uh, programs, newspaper all over the country. And they had a board of directors, and I looked into the board of directors, and they were all very Cold Warish. And so I started to learn about Cold War research, not only into miniaturization of texts, but into the nuclear-powered airplane and uh, other bizarre things, and into, into into germ science, 
one of the members of the board on the board of directors was this guy named Carl Haskins, who was um, very famous at the time. He was an expert in in ant societies, and um, it turned out that he'd also been part of a CIA project Artichoke. He'd advised the CIA on means and methods of of changing people's minds through drugs and and um, using and improved art of, uh, interrogation techniques and stuff. So I just started to learn about it. That's what be, that's how it all began is with a kind of curiosity about this world that was to me uh, completely new. It was just this was um, this was in two thousand or two thousand and one when I was working on a book called Double Fold about. Newspaper deaccessioning, as you can, as, and and then uh, gradually, I just learned more about what was going on, and and eventually came upon these two men, whom I became friends with, in Toronto. These two historians, Stephen Endicott, Steve Endicott, and Edward Hagerman, and I, I really liked them. I got to know them and liked them. I interviewed them, and uh, and their book about the question of whether the United States had used germ weapons in this very fraught early period of, of the Cold War during a period when the United States was essentially defeated by the Chinese and the North Koreans. Um, they, their book claimed that although it couldn't be definitively proved, there was an awful lot of evidence for something very strange that went on in that period. And they didn't uncovered hundreds, if not thousands, of new documents, memos, and letters, and reports. And they and this, and especially Ned Hagerman was just tireless in his requests through the Freedom of Information Act to get at things. And he was able to uncover all this stuff. And eventually, I um, Ned gave me his entire collection. And then I added to it, and then I, and then years went by, and then I made my own requests, which were, which sat just sat there unanswered. So after seven years of of not getting any response from one re- request that I'd made of the Air Force, I just thought, I'm going to die and not know what happened. So it was the desire not to die ignorant. <laughs> you know, I want to see the documents that I know are there. But that, but that are being kept behind me in a special facility in the National Archives. I want to see them. So it's the desire for knowledge, the desire for truth. And people say that your work, it doesn't fall into traditional n- narrative categories. But there is a clear narrative, it seems to me, in the book. You say in 2012, I was hopeful and curious and middle-aged uh, and eager for Cold War truth now in 2020. I'm not suggesting you are maybe maybe late middle age, but are, are you more cynical now about Cold War truth? Do you believe that it can be discovered? Or have did you find over this last eight years that the, the Freedom of Information Act in the US is essentially means that we cannot get to the truth about these core Cold War events like this by potential bio war in in East Asia, I think you, you have to t- uh, I, you have to stay positive. <laughs> but there are heartbreaking moments. And one of the moments came 
uh, after I'd finished the book, finally the CIA responded to one of my requests. And, it, you know, I wanted to know, uh, there's a, a, a project called MKUltra, which is now kind of famous because it involved, uh, you know, it involved messing with people's minds. But this was actually not about that. It was about a guy who was an expert in sugarcane, sugarcane crops. And um, he was hired by the CIA at around the time when the CIA was considering whether to basically destroy the Cuban sugarcane crop. And, and we know more about this now because within the last couple of years, documents that had been kept secret were finally opened up. So I wanted to know the name of this man and some of the things that were behind the blacked out passages in the tiny little report, summary of his research that was submitted to this department uh, of of the CIA by the person in charge of the research. So I said, could I have it? And after, I guess it was two years, um, I finally got a response. And what they said was, um, essentially, that redacted document that was, that was blacked out like that in the 70s during the kind of outrage moment when there was a church committee investigation into the CIA's excesses, that blacked out document, that photocopied thing, is all there is now. The original document doesn't exist. It's just all we have is the redacted document. And so they were implying that all of these MK Ultra documents that, that had been turned over with great reluctance, but as the result of a lawsuit to this guy named Marx, who wrote a beautiful, amazing book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, using them, that all those documents were gone and all that was left with the, were, were the redacted versions of the documents. So we were always permanently going to be tantalized with this, these uh, blots, these lacunae. And uh, that was a horrible, worried moment. And then again, it came to me immediately afterwards that um, that you better not believe everything that some guy in the, the you know, FOIA department of the CIA says. Because, you know, there, there are lots of departments and there's a huge record services area and they have no incentive to, to say, we have, actually we have 10 boxes of the original documents, but we're not going to give them to you for this reason. Because there is no good reason at this point. There's no good reason they could say. So they could just say, well, we d did a diligent search and we couldn't find the actual documents. They, to our knowledge, they are not, they do not exist anymore. Lot, lot, lots of departments. Um, reading your book, obviously uh, Kafka comes to mind, uh, but you also mentioned the Manchurian Candidate, and I, and I kept on thinking of Doctor Strangelove while reading it. <laughs> what did you find? What, what is your conclusion? You, you've you've looked at some of these characters. One of the guys was Frank Wisner, the CIA Director of Covert Operations. You mm -hmm. end the book with his suicide. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about this? Uh, this military-industrial uh, complex in 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 the fifties and sixties in America was it really made up of of, of crazes? Was Doctor Strangelove or the Manchurian Candidate? Is this the real truth about Cold War American history? Um, I don't think exactly that. Frank Wisner, 
is a fascinating person, there's no doubt. And he um, set into motion a lot of things that had violent a violent side to him. I mean, he he over he his department of the CIA um, overthrew governments and caused mayhem in in many nations. He himself was a tortured person, and he's been written about uh, by a couple in a couple of good books. The Evan Thomas book about uh, about that it's sort of a group biography of cold warriors and. Um, but there's been no biography of him because he's sort of a mystery, no no one-off biography of him. Because um, partly because the documents that would describe what he was doing in 1948, 1949, and 1950, when he was sort of building the clandestine service of the CIA, are not available very much. There's there are there are these uh, records of of um, weekly or even daily um, staff meetings with the director of the CIA at the time, who did not like Frank Wisner. Wisner was a manic depressive, and um, he, he, as he began to get manic, he just, I, I think he became anxious about every communist element. Uh, he, I felt that the world was crawling with this infection of communism. And to fight that infection, he funded all sorts of programs of, of uh, propaganda, but also of countervailing infections that were that were actually biological infections. Um, he wasn't he wasn't a Doctor Strangelove or a or um, an evil genius. He was more of a genial uh guy who loved to tell funny stories. He was he was from the South and he, he he'd been an athlete in, in college and he loved a cocktail and he would have his friends over and he had many friends in the press and he loved the idea that he could drop a hint over cocktails to you know someone at the post or the Times or whoever and that it would appear. And and some of these hints that he dropped were true and some of them were sort of misinformation that would help something happen in Iran or or uh, Guatemala, especially, um, and he was proud of that ability to be a, a member of the of the Georgetown scene. Um, there's a there's just a a kind of clubbish aspect to the guy. He was from I don't I can't remember which prep school he went to, but he was a lawyer, you know, and he, he knew all these other lawyers and the- Groton. I think you mentioned he went to Groton and Yale. I don't remember. I actually don't remember. I could get, they're all blue chip Ivy League types, and they all went to fancy places, and they all went ended up in white shoe law firms, and uh, then hired each other. And uh, right, and that's, but, and, yeah. but then you you suggest that possibly at least they all then and and I use this word carefully hatched plots to drop insects, bed bugs, and other kinds of creepy crawlies on 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 China and Korea. Well, it's a very complicated thing. First of all, let me let me let me let me just say that I think where I looked at his papers was at the University of Virginia. I think he he went to the University of Virginia, and his papers there are absolutely fascinating. And they and especially the papers after he had a complete collapse in in the late fifties, and he was in a deep deep depression. And he just he he wrote things. He wrote things in dialect. Uh, he wrote. 
strange comic pieces and uh, ravings of various kinds, and also very um, revealing just accounts of his inner turmoil. I mean, the man was a suffering human being who'd just been through an unbelievable series of electroshock treatments. So, so, um, so I think it was University of of, of Virginia. Um, but yeah, I, th- I what happened? Okay. So the so the bugs, you know, the bugs. It sounds ridiculous, and that's actually part of the attraction, I think, to the CIA is to come up with something that sounds so ridiculous it can't possibly be true. Um, <laughs> because that, and there was a there's a point at which some somebody said the State Department. Somebody said there was a there was an an accusation that the uh, Americans in these planes had flown over Czechoslovakia and dropped. Um, potato bugs, potato, Coronado, what it was, Colorado beetles onto the Czechoslovakian potato crop. And the State Department guy said, we used ridicule in combating the charges, which they did. All the newspaper articles were had And, and it's, it, it's perfectly appropriate for them to do it in Czechoslovakia, given the Kafka's from Prague, of course, right? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Nick, yeah. let me let me let, let me rephrase the question because yeah. you are uh, you are professionally elusive on, on some of this stuff. Mm. I'm an open book. You're a closed book. Uh, you're a closed <laughs> open book. But um, uh, you, I'm not going to give away the ending. Everyone knows that we we don't know the final the final outcome of this. It can't be proved either way. Mm. Uh, but but two questions. Firstly. Mm. Would you have liked it to be true? Do you think you would have been happier had you been able to prove that this biological warfare was actually conducted in the early 50s by the CIA? Well, um, uh, okay. I think that the, that the CIA did. Tr- I'm not going to hold back anything. I don't believe in, in I mean, I, I want people to understand what was possible in 1950, for instance. So in 1950, I think... There was a tiny program in which people spread a very bad bunch of diseases uh, that were in feathers. And there's this scene of feather, people flinging mm. feathers in a, in a village. And then there was the outbreak of a brand new disease that had never appeared in Korea before that, uh, that ran in, in isolated foci along, the DM, along what's now the DMZ. And it's called. It was called um, Songo fever when the Japanese germ warfare people did it, and they had been hired by the Americans, and and, and it was called. Uh, it was called. Uh, let's see, hemorrhagic fevers. Sometimes it was called Korean hemorrhagic fever, and sometimes it had other names. But essentially, it was this kind of unbelievably bloody, uh, high fever disease that nobody had ever seen before. In Korea, and it killed a lot of American men as well as um, others. So I think that actually happened, and I think that was a a CIA-run program. Um, there were many covert programs at the time. So then I talk about some of the people it could have been, but it was tiny, and the Chinese—I uh, mean, the the Chinese and the North Koreans—objected strenuously, and they petitioned the United Nations, where they weren't allowed to. So all that, I think, actually did happen. The second one, which was a much bigger propaganda battle, and it occupied the front pages of the New York Times and the Herald Tribune and French papers and German papers and, of course, Chinese and Korean papers for months was this battle 
of, of charges and countercharges about whether the Americans were dropping bugs and a certain kind of field mouse called a vole and uh, all kinds of, there were wolf spiders involved. Okay. Um, that was, I think, something called a deception operation. It was not, I th there may have been a little bit of disease involved initially because you want to convince people that there's an actual threat. But um, I think that what the um, Americans were doing, they were flying their planes out of Japan. There were these laboratories, American-run laboratories in Japan that were studying Asian diseases, uh, scrub typhus and other diseases including this mysterious new outbreak called Korean hemorrhagic fever. And all of those diseases need, were, were, some of them were transmitted by bugs. And so they had just enormous numbers of, um, of various kinds of fleas and flies and, and these things called springtails, which were fed, their eggs were fed to the other. So they just had a menagerie of creepy stuff in pens in these labs, okay? And what I think they did was they took these leaflet bombs that had been already been adapted for germ warfare purposes, and that's exhaustively documented and declassified, and nobody has any questions with that. And they, instead of putting uh, crop to disease feathers in there, they put bugs in there, and they dropped them. But what, what the Chinese thought uh, was that the Americans were you know, that there were diseases on these bugs, but it's not at all convincing when they, they have these, <laughs> they have these guys come and uh, try to find plague germs on some of these um, partly putrefied bits of these fields. There were 700 field voles, said the Chinese, outraged, fell from the sky last, uh, last night. And we, we, we are really upset about that. My question is, if if you were a person who was going to make up a germ warfare charge and you had all the published accounts of what America was doing with germs, would you actually make it up that they were going to drop these small mouse-like creatures half dead from the sky, uh, that 700 of them, a number, uh, maybe more, because they, they figured that about 100 were eaten by cats, so... Um, no, of course you wouldn't. It's, it's not, a, you, you, you know, that's a, just a bizarre charge. That, and when a charge is so flakily bizarre, sometimes you have to think that, you have to just say, yes, it happened. In fact, it did happen. It, it clearly happened. The poor, there was a kid who finally, you know, kept two of these voles. And, and so then the, the, the scientific group travel to China to take a look at this situation. And there are only a few carca mice carcasses left. And, and they, uh, they do various things with ground up bits of these poor dead um, voles. And they culture it and culture it. And when they pass it, pass it through another thing and do several other things with it, they find some structures through the microscope that look rather like possibly pestis, that is plague. And they so they say the Americans were dropping plague-doped field voles on us, and we're very unhappy about that. But actually, the Americans were just dropping 
field voles on them that had been part of these. The voles were part of the what the labs were uh, studying because they were carriers of scrub typhus and hemorrhagic fever. So that's a long answer. My God, what if I, I've gotten already gotten wound up and, and we're only what, 20, 25 minutes into this thing. Um, I got to calm down. Well, let me calm you down by asking <laughs> you my, my final question. And everyone of course should read Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act, Nicholson Baker's latest blockbuster. Uh, <laughs> actually, it, it's mistitled, Nick. It should be, it's anything but baseless, the, the charges. Well, it's uh, because but, of it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, it's, uh, yes, I know. It's because of the, the Freedom of Information, your your search for secrets in the ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. But you're you're stuck in the in the current, and if, if there is another, if we're in the midst of a biological war, maybe the Chinese should drop half-dead voles on, on Maine. I know you're stuck there. Um, <laughs> what, in addition to Basis, which is a wonderful read, um, really compelling, um, really beautifully written and, and coherent and and, and, and starring your two uh, latest members of your family, two wonderful dogs. Um, what else should people be reading, uh, Nick, in, 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 in this current surreal year of 2020 in July when we're, we're still stuck in our homes? Okay, well, I would say read, first read up on, on the situation in China because it actually is relevant. The... the um, there is a strong possibility that it wasn't obviously wasn't a bioweapon. It was a it was a lab leak. It's very strong possibility, and lots of very smart scientists are saying that. So um, what I talk about in the book is all these laboratory mishaps. They're they're trying to cook up a germ weapon that will destroy the Soviet wheat crop. Something goes wrong, and suddenly they're destroying wheat crops in Minnesota. So. Um, I think that if you look at the actual scientific research work that was being produced um, in the years up to late 2019, if you read the scientific papers, the actual virology, it's a real education and um, it's fascinating. So I've been doing a certain amount of that, but um, obviously most of life is about nice things. And I, I, I like nice, I like actual beauty and beautiful writing and stuff. So I have been reading very slowly um, a memoir by a woman named Emily Han, who uh, she, she wrote, she spent some time in China. She was um, just a really adventurous person who eventually um, traveled all over the world. She was a staff writer for The New Yorker, and she wrote this series of pieces, of autobiographical pieces, as she traveled around the world. One of, his, one of them is a chronicle of her opium addiction in, in, in China. She's just a wonderful, smooth, fluent writer of a, of a sort of old, in an old-fashioned way that I just love. And so her book, her memoir, which is assembled of these New Yorker pieces, called, it's called, it was originally called Times and Places, and I think it was then renamed and reissued under a new title, which was No Hurry to Get Home, is a really therapeutic kind of thing because she's sane and she's rash and she makes mistakes and she's likable. You know, I love a likable narrator. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.